welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Thank you so much for joining us on this Sunday between Christmas and New Year. If we haven't met before, my name is Yelena, and I'm one of the pastors on our team. And once in a while, I get to spend my Sunday morning here with you, which is always a joy. And speaking of joy, we just had our first Christmas Eve service here in Inglewood. I wasn't here to experience it, unfortunately, but I heard that it was amazing. And it's really beautiful how we could open our doors and celebrate with over 200 neighbors. So once again, huge thank you to all the volunteers who made it possible for us to host six Christmas Eve services across both parishes this Sunday. This Tuesday. Today is Sunday. So now we are officially in the season that the church calls Christmas Tide or 12 days of Christmas. So if Advent focuses on our longings for the divine, Christmas Tide is the time of unabashed celebration of God with us. It's about joy that finally all of our human experience from beginning to end is taken up in the divine and there is no, there's no going back. And this rhythm of fasting and feasting, waiting and celebration is really important in the liturgical calendar. I recently watched an interview with a prominent Russian female director who likes to explore the darker side of human nature in her films. You know, very Russian thing, we like this stuff. But the interviewer noticed how over the years something has changed in this director's perspective and personality. And she responded that she is learning to experience joy. And this is what the liturgical calendar does for us as well. This rhythm of yearning and celebration teaches us how to be present to life in all its fullness. Not to turn away from our brokenness, but also to welcome joy and learn to recognize it and to experience it. So today is the fifth day of Christmas. And during Advent, our imagination has been richly nourished by the pentad of prayers, which is a Latin word for five. So the five prayers in the Gospel of Luke that were prayed and sung and proclaimed in response to God's coming to be with people. And in all those prayers, people both welcomed God into their story and were caught by surprise to be welcomed into a much larger story. The story they kind of knew, but that was so far removed from them and their circumstances that it almost didn't feel real anymore. And today, we're going to look at another well-known song, this time from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Partly because we are in Christmas tide, and it is a traditional Christmas reading, sometimes read on the first Sunday of Advent, sometimes on Christmas Eve, but also because it is telling the same story that Mary and Zachariah and Simeon pick up in their prayers centuries later. In one of his books, Stanley Harwas, one of my favorite theologians, develops this idea that salvation is not so much a new beginning, but rather a beginning in the middle. 
and that faith begins not in discovery, but in remembrance. The story began without us, and now it addresses us and invites us to come forth and join the adventure. So Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah and the shepherds who heard the angels sing glory in excelsis, they all began in the middle. And in some way, their prayers are an exercise in remembrance as they take a step toward to discover the story anew. And the gospel writers, the apostles, and the early church, all those from whom we received the story, had done the same. They went back to the Hebrew scriptures to remember the story of God with people, and then reinterpreted it in light of Christ. And every year, this is what Christmas invites us to do as well, to find home in this extraordinary story and to allow its beauty to open us up to new ways of being in the world. So let's pray and take a look at this reading in Isaiah. Our loving God. with Christmas and everything it brings to the surface, and with all the soul searching that comes around this time of year, we ask you to meet, to meet us right here where we are. In our reflections on the goals we've accomplished and those that were too much for us this year. In our experience of letting go as we release ourselves from expectations as we release others from our expectations. Meet us in our need to be understood and comforted and encouraged. And we ask you to meet us in our joy, in the delight of friendship and family and this community, in our gratitude for how you carried us through this year in surprising kindness, in new experiences, and in unexpected gifts. And as we look back at the ancient, ancient words of a Jewish prophet, and as we look forward to the new year dreaming and planning, may we trust that your love is as true today as it was long ago, and that we are never outside your grace. Be with us now, Lord. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, today we're talking about stories we find ourselves in, vision that takes us forward, unexpected beginnings, and the expanding story. And we start in Isaiah chapter 9. Nevertheless, there will be no gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Sometimes we find ourselves in the stories we wouldn't choose. And this is how Isaiah begins his famous song. We are so used to hearing the scripture as the fulfillment of all prophetic expectations in Jesus that we forget that Isaiah here is not primarily speaking about a Messiah. He is telling a story. 
Now, Isaiah is a court prophet living in the kingdom of Judah in the 8th century BCE. He advises the kings of Judah on matters of God and politics. But he's more than a prophet. He's also a poet par excellence. Actually, a huge percentage of poetry in the Bible was written by prophets. They spoke for God. So people believed that whenever God spoke, God did not use an everyday language of prose, but instead communicated through this elevated and beautiful and expressive language of poetry. And I think there is something to it. I believe God speaks to us in any way we can hear. But it's true that often we hear the divine much more clearly through art and music and theater and our own creativity. But that's just a side note. Our ancient poem here begins with a prose introduction and we see people in distress because of the story they find themselves in. Now bear with me for a moment as we engage in some ancient geopolitics here. The actual events are hard to untangle, but the consensus is that this poem is set in the aftermath of an internal conflict in the region, which led to Assyrian domination over Israel and Judah in the 8th century BCE. So, there are four players in the region. We have the tribes of Israel split into the northern kingdom of Israel and southern kingdom of Judah, where Isaiah is, and we also have the kingdom of Syria. Now, the Assyrian Empire, our fourth player, is the largest power in the region. Judah is not on its radar, but Syria and Israel are subordinate to it and have to pay tribute. And of course, they do not like this arrangement. So the kings of Syria and Israel decide to break away, but they need more manpower. They're too small. So they invite Ahaz, the king of Judah at that time, to join them. Ahaz says, thanks but no, and in response, Syria and Israel decide to invade Judah to replace Ahaz with a puppet king so they can use Judah's financial and military resources in their war against Assyria. Out of desperation, Ahaz turns to Assyria for help. Isaiah advises him not to because God told him that those two small kingdoms are not a threat, whereas Assyria is. But Ahaz listens to his fears and reaches out to Assyria anyway. What happens then is that Assyria comes in, overpowers both Israel and Syria, and annexes two important cultural and trade regions in Israel, the land of Naphtali and the land of Zebulun, and makes them into three Assyrian provinces, Galilee of the nations, the way of the sea, and the land beyond Jordan. So all those names in the introduction are not five different regions. We are talking about the same areas plus everything that follows from foreign occupation, when borders are redrawn and when names are erased. And Judah, in return for the aid received, becomes one of the Assyrian tribute nations. And now Assyrian power and influence and their military are present in the land of Judah too. So it's kind of a shaky piece. 
But political games are only one side of the story. The other side is about people caught in those situations. And Isaiah brings a word of hope to those left in the aftermath, those who find themselves under a new government, those who lost their homeland as they knew it, and those who feel like they have little control in their story. And many of us would know how it feels. Perhaps even this year, you found yourself in a story that you wouldn't choose for yourself. And perhaps someone made you feel as if you did. At some point, we all had our story reflected back to us. Have you found someone? When do you think you'll get married? Oh, with your education, why are you in that job? Or, you know, it's about time for you. Or why don't you just, or you should. We all can continue those phrases. And it takes a lot of courage to be in those places and to keep going and to keep it cool, especially around those comments. And yes, they don't usually come from a bad place, but they still carry a certain set of assumptions about what your story should be. And that can hurt, and hurt deep. But Isaiah here allows the story to be what it is. Multiple times he names the experiences of, of his people, both Israel and Judah, as darkness and distress. And it feels dark when what's yours is taken, be it your land or your voice or your agency or your freedom to be at peace where you, where, where you are at life in the Mormon. It feels dark when we wait for things to work out for our good and they don't. It feels dark when our loved ones are sick, when our bodies turn against us, when we are anxious about our future and can't really fix it. And we all know the deep darkness when we punish ourselves for not being enough. Not enough for ourselves, not enough for others, and not enough even for God. And the Christmas story is God's yes to all of it. God is with us, especially in those moments of darkness that we did not choose. The light shines and shines on us until we can see it. And God sings over us until we can hear. Kathleen Norris writes that it's hard for us to remember that we are continually invited to hear a new song. Words full of possibilities we have not yet seen or can't imagine. All we need are the ears to hear, but our tired old ears resist us at every turn. And this is why Isaiah repeats, darkness, darkness, light, light. What you see is not all there is. Take heart, God is near. And he continues his song. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. 
Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. You know, there are songs that you hear once, then listen to them again, and then they stay with you forever. You know, those songs that speak for you and make you feel seen and give you space to breathe. And when I was sitting with this poem last week, this particular section reminded me of a song that stuck with me since 2009. It is a U2 song called The Moment of Surrender, and it looks at the world through the eyes of a person caught in a cycle of addiction. And now it's affecting the people they love, but they feel powerless. And there's this one line that describes a moment of awakening, of complete presence to oneself. I honestly think it's one of you two's best line. At the moment of surrender, of vision over visibility. And there's no resolution in the song, but there is a sense that the journey back begins at that moment. And that vision can carry us through those things that are visibly against us. And this is what Isaiah does here, too. He meets people in their fears and creates a moment of vision in a situation that feels like surrender. He reminds them that the light of divine presence has always been part of their story and that they know it. They know that a long time ago there were slaves in Egypt, and Egypt feared them and pushed them hard to make them small. But God brought them out of slavery and enlarged their nation, a vision of joy. They know that God brought them into a good land, so much so that their major festivals now are connected with harvest. Another occasion for rejoicing. Much later, when they were greatly outnumbered by their enemy, the Midianites, God helped them to defeat thousands of soldiers with only 300 warriors. One more call for joy and trust, even in the situation of oppression. Because the story is not over yet. One other reason why prophets wrote so much poetry is that poetry is easier to remember, both for its imagery and patterns. The smashing of all those symbols of intimidating power paints a vivid picture of liberation. The yoke is shattered, this ancient Near Eastern image of political domination. Together with the bar across the shoulders, a device that was used to constrain slaves. So is the rod of an oppressor, a symbol of brutal control. And Isaiah wants people to remember the song. So he comes up with those patterns. Joy, rejoice, rejoice. The yoke, the bar, the rod, every boot and every garment for burning, for fire. It is almost as if he knew that before people could catch an alternative vision, they needed to hear it from different angles and through different images. And I sometimes wonder how many times and in how many ways we need to hear a different story until we begin to trust it. How many times we need to be told that we are loved and we are lovable to actually believe in it. And how many acts of kindness and grace, external and internal, it will take 
before not only our tired ears, but also our tired and hiding and overprotecting and a little bit cynical hearts will stop resisting and fully turn towards a new story. It is hard to pin down the precise time and occasion for this poetic vision casting. And so some scholars believe that it was written for the coronation of Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, who did manage to break away from Assyrian domination. Other scholars think it is a traditional liturgical hymn used during coronations in Jerusalem and that it doesn't have a specific person in mind. Instead, it gathers all the hopes for peace and prosperity that people would usually associate with any new ruler. And yet others suggest that this whole poem requires a multi-layered reading and that it refers both to a specific historical situation and to what Israel hoped would happen at the end of history. You see, in the Jewish worldview, the world was always described as a story. And that story had a beginning and will have an end. But they were not really concerned about when the end will take place. The question was always about what we are moving toward. And the telling and retelling of their stories through festivals and symbols and poetic imagery and liturgy were meant to train them to see beyond what was visible. This hymn was not only used in liturgy, it was also meant to help people see where God is taking the world. And that part of God's purpose for the world is shalom. This Hebrew concept of complete restoration of everything that's been distorted and divided. And this would include a complete abolition of war when not only armies, but everything that enables them, their weapons, their garments, and intentions to spill blood, will eventually be destroyed. And being a prophet, Isaiah speaks in the perfect tense, as if all these shalom-making events have already happened. And for the prophetic imagination, this was the only thing, the only way for things to go. Because the change that sets everything in motion has already begun in the birth of a baby. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There was a new book released this month titled How to Be a Dictator, a set of reflections on the common features of the 20th century dictators, and some reviewers on Amazon expressed their disappointment that the book did not contain clear instructions on how to actually become one. How unfortunate. But jokes aside, how often is the narrative that we inhabit, in order, how often in the narratives that we inhabit, in order to resist any power, you need to have more power. We totally get those geopolitical moves that we talked about. The 8th century before the Common Era is not that different from our current time. To live in peace, you need to have an army. And apparently, 
One of the things that Mao, Stalin, and Hitler had in common was that they each wanted to have an element of mystery about themselves. They wanted to create and sustain space between the truth and the image that they projected. And to increase the sense of mystery and project power, they avoided being seen too often and being accessible. But Isaiah here gives people their king at his most vulnerable, a newborn baby. There's no image to project, and the truth is brought up close. The one who's given the titles of mighty God and prince of peace can be seen and held and cradled. And the element of mystery here is in the fact that we struggle to believe that all those armies and empires and dictatorships will be overcome with not more violence and intimidation, but less. The real strength is not afraid to be vulnerable, and that all-encompassing peace can start so small. Isaiah gives us a new narrative. And for him, it can begin with every new king, but it is not limited to them, because anyone who reflects the character of God in their peacemaking, in their wise counsel, in parent-like care for the overlooked, and in power that serves rather than oppresses, is working with God to take the world one step closer to shalom. And the story keeps unfolding. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so we have it, a prophecy from Judah that makes a surprising claim that restoration will begin with Israel, those northern clans of Zebulun and Naphtali that attacked Judah. The light will first come to a suffering brother, even though he's been a bit of a bully. In this vision of an ideal king reigning with justice and righteousness, Isaiah has laid the ground for the expectations of a Messiah who will one day bring salvation and peace to one united kingdom of Israel. However, this vision keeps expanding. Isaiah's disciples continued to write his book over a time span of some 400 years. And when we pick up the story in Isaiah 49, we read about the Messiah again. By that time, the whole region was under the rule of the Babylonian Empire. And the situation was even worse than under the Assyrians, because now Judah was totally displaced and taken into captivity to Babylon. But now the Messiah is not portrayed as an ideal king, but as a servant of the Lord who will expand the story of salvation beyond Israel and Judah. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. 
And now this vision of shalom not only includes the separated and rebellious family members, but also extends to outsiders, including the oppressors. And then again, a few centuries later in his gospel, Matthew looks at Jesus and remembers the song of Isaiah about salvation that will begin small but reach to the ends of the earth. Matthew writes, leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. The Messiah came into the world as a vulnerable baby, born in the backwaters of yet another global power, the Roman Empire. A small event, an unnoticeable beginning that has revealed what God is about and began the change of a cosmic dimension that cannot be undone. And this is a Christmas story. It has room for young mothers and old religions, frightened shepherds and power-seeking politicians. It has room for small children who know true power for you and for me and for those we like and those we don't, and for love that can absorb all darkness. In the incarnation, God heals this world from inside. The divine takes the most fragile human form to say to us, I am born into the world for you. You are not made to fulfill my ambitions. You are not made to build my empire. I am a different king. I will take in all the darkness to set you free and to heal everything that is divided. So, if you're taking some time over the next few days to reflect on this past year or even past decade, Maybe allow the story of Christmas to sit with you for a few more days. Don't pack it away till next year just yet. And maybe use this gift of Christmas tide to be present to your story and to be present to God in your story and just see what will come to the surface, what will bubble up for you. And as you go into this week and the new year, may you trust that you are not alone especially if life feels a bit dark and heavy at the moment. May you hold on to hope and see beyond what is visible. May you find joy in small beginnings. And most of all, may the story of Christmas, of this incredible, persistent, ever-expanding love, wrap itself around you and once again fill you with wonder. Join me in prayer. living God, Father, Son, and Spirit, our stories are yours, and this is where you find us. Would you help us to see the miracle of your incarnation and how you come to us in the lives we live through the people we encounter and in places 
where we spend our days. May we begin this new year with a profound sense of trust that you are with us. May we dream well, may we plan well, but also leave the room for you to surprise us and meet us where we least expect. Lord, deepen our love this year, deepen our joy, and bless us with your peace. We pray all this in the strong name of the risen Christ. Amen.